to. You guys see a place like that. I let me just paraphrase that song for you. You're never too far gone to be out of the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. No matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've associated with, there is hope and salvation available for you today. And that is why we are here. That is what we rejoice in. That is what we who have already believed stand in. Not anything in our own strength, but by His grace alone are we saved. This morning, I am going to preach from James chapter 4. But before we get there, as is customary at the church, we will take a moment to ask God to search our hearts, to cleanse us of any sin, any cares, any burdens that we brought in, and take a moment to just confess those things to Him to prepare ourselves for worship. And so I'm going to read from you to you from Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, and then we'll take a few moments of silent confession, and then I'll lead us in prayer before we begin our message today. Psalm 85, verse 4 says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not? Revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let's pray together quietly. Father, we do ask as your people that you would revive us again, that you would help us as a church to be the catalyst to see revival take place. Lord, we gather here today grateful, thankful for your love to us and the salvation provided through your only Son, Jesus Christ. May we make much of him, not just in this hour, but in our lives. And may we hear from you today as your written word is proclaimed to us. May your spirit convict, draw, encourage, exhort, whatever is needed. And may you get all the glory from what we do here. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like us today to turn to the book of James. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be. The title of my message this morning is Christian Conflict. Christian Conflict. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? And in fact, it is, but it is a reality nonetheless. And the Bible has much to say about it, and also offers some solutions to avoid it. And so James chapter 4 is where we're going to read this morning, and I am going to ask if you're able, one last time, to stand with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, in honor of God's word, if you can stand. James writes these words to the believers in Jerusalem. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your lusts, your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, 
so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Father, we ask you to bless your word now. We ask you to move in this service as you see fit. We pray for those that are watching, those that are here that may be lost, that you would show them grace and give them an opportunity to turn from their sins and receive forgiveness and eternal life. And as believers, we pray that this message would be one that we would focus on for ourselves personally, that we would not seek to make application of it to someone else, but that we would allow the Word of God to search our own hearts and examine ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for all you do to us and for us now. In Jesus' name. You may be saved. Our world is no stranger to conflict. If we were to look at the history of our world, we would see that there are very few years that are marked by peace, and the overwhelming majority are filled with wars and conflicts. When we think about wars, I would say that some of us would have a few that would come to mind. Maybe perhaps some of you here watching today have served in the military and had the unfortunate experience of actually engaging in a military conflict. And we thank you for your service if that is the case. Certainly when we talk about wars, there are some big ones that we always mention. World War I and II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Civil War, Revolutionary War. For our country at least, we think about some of those major battles. But what about these? Have you heard of these battles? There are actual wars that took place in history. You can go home and read about these if you'd like to do so. The War of the Whiskers. You ever heard of that one? An actual battle concerning someone growing your beard out. The War of the Oaken Bucket. That one took place in around the 12th century where city was invaded and a bucket was taken from the city and they were determined to go and get the bucket back. The War of Jenkins' Ear. Yes, someone's ear was cut off, not just Malchus in the Bible. Someone else's that started a war. It's the War of Jenkins' Ear. And so we think about wars and we understand that sometimes wars are justified and unfortunately needed to liberate those that are being oppressed and abused, and to overthrow evil dictators and dictatorships. But I think it's fair to say that whether it's a national conflict or an individual conflict, there are wars that we engage in that are unnecessary, and they are childish at times, if we're honest. So James poses a question for us. This morning. And I want us to think about number one, the cause of our conflicts. What causes, he asks, quarrels or wars, and what causes fights, conflicts among you? I want us to think about the quarrels, the wars that James is talking about. The word is polemos in the Greek. The Greeks have a spirit, if you will, of war known as polemos. It's in Greek mythology. The word there is speaking of a continual, constant military campaign. It is a large-scale battle 
that rages and wages on. We think about our word polemics that we get in from the get from that Greek word in the English, the art of argumentation or controversy. Some people are very good at polemics, arguing and always creating or being engaged and involved in controversy. And then he says, not only are there wars, but there are fightings. There are conflicts that go on. The word there in the Greek takes us down a notch from this large-scale military campaign to smaller individualized battles or maybe small groups. We can think about physical hand-to-hand combat or sword fighting going on, if you will. That's the type of word that is used in the second uh, example that James gives us. But here's the interesting thing. That second word is only used four times in the New Testament. Now in a secular sense, again, it's small individual or small groups fighting. But the New Testament uses it figuratively, always. And it never involves an actual fight. It always involves words, which if we went back one chapter, and we will in a moment, and looked at James 3, we would see he has quite a bit to say about the power of the tongue, does he not? And the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, it could not be farther from the truth. Our words carry life or death in the power of the tongue. Let me give you one example of how this word is used concerning language and not a physical actual fight. Titus 3.9 He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels or strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Don't get into a fight, a war of words with someone. It's not worth it. And so he's used the word to describe Big, ongoing military campaigns. And then he uses a word to talk about smaller groups fighting or individuals fighting. But now he's going to bring it down where I want to bring it down to today. The church level. Because look what he says in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among who? Among you, what causes full-scale military battles and conflicts or individual hand-to-hand combat, war of words, what causes these conflicts among you in the church? Is he talking about people in the church? Well, hold your place and flip over a page to chapter 3 and look at verse 12. As he begins this discourse, even before this verse, but you see in James 3.12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? He's speaking to his brethren. He's speaking to fellow believers. The epistle is written to believers primarily to instruct them and to offer them help and hope. But the text that we've read today comes on the heels of the ending of chapter 3, and there is a contrast there, and I want us to see that real quick. So James 3, look at beginning at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Or we could say in humility. He's saying when we are wise, as the word of God allows us to be wise, it results in works, good conduct, that always show themselves forth in a spirit of humility. There are many people in church that do lots of good things in the wrong spirit. There are many people that do things to be seen of men, not of God. And they, Jesus says, will have their reward. Then he goes on in verse 14 of chapter 3. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The word jealousy there means to boil over. Think of a pile of stone. It's always boiling. Selfish ambition can be translated a party spirit. You're always trying to get people on your side. You're always trying to draw people to your cause. You've always got a conflict and you want others to join you in it. That is the idea. He says to not have that type of jealousy and ambition in your hearts. Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll said, Bitter jealousy likely refers to jealousy that harbors hard feelings. A jealous person has full hands, but feels his or her own belongings or accomplishments are threatened by another's success. This first vice usually accompanies the second, which is selfish ambition. The heart of an unwise person carries an insatiable hunger to push himself or herself to the top. Verse 15, he says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Doesn't he say every good and perfect gift comes down from above? This is not that. This is not that. But it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Does this sound serious? Does this sound like an attitude that we ought to see in ourselves and ignore or allow to be carried through in the church? Absolutely not. It's a worldly, fleshly, demonic attitude and spirit. He goes on in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Instability, upheaval, nothing good comes from it. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The seven qualities that will result when we exercise godly wisdom in humility and strive to be unified as brothers and sisters. The result is verse 18. We will harvest a and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we work towards this ideal, we will realize peace. We will realize peace, but it takes intentional effort to see it happen. It won't simply come without work. One pastor that I follow named Stephen Cole, he said this concerning this passage. No farmer sits around doing nothing all year, then goes out into the field and says, whoa, look at that beautiful harvest. If there is a harvest, it is in part because he has worked hard to cultivate that harvest. If you see a church or a home where there is peace, it is because the members have worked to cultivate peace. They have listened to one another, respected one another, 
judged their own selfishness and pride, and sought to live in accordance with godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Let me read to you James 4.1 again. Now you see the contrast from the ideal at the end of chapter 3 to now where we have arrived in chapter 4. Let me read to you verse 1 again from the Amplified Version. But I want you to get a different understanding of it, or a different hearing of it, if you will. What leads to the unending quarrels and conflicts among you? Do they not come from your hedonistic desires? Hedonism is the desire to always please and satisfy yourself. That is the goal is to live life of pleasure for yourself. From your hedonistic desires that wage war in your bodily members, in you, fighting for control of you. We already said that James points out who he's talking about. Where are these fightings and what are these quarrels among you? Who? Believers. He's bringing this right into the church. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Do you see why the Bible has so much to say about these topics? It's because these were issues from day one. These were issues from day one of the church. And it is necessary always that we are on guard against our flesh, the world, and the enemy. Because he uses the same schemes to trip us up. And we are prone to fall as the song we sang, prone to wander. Lord, I feel that. We often do. And it was a problem that we see in the scriptures. The church in Corinth were suing one another in front of unbelievers. They were taking each other to court over issues that they should have resolved together in the church. It was an attitude that the world saw as they acted like unbelievers. The Galatians were biting and devouring one another, talking about each other, drawing party sides, if you will. And Paul had to rebuke them for that. In Philippi, the beloved church in Philippi that Paul's heart was so near and dear to were two sisters that couldn't get along and weren't speaking. So you see throughout the scriptures that the churches have issues because imperfect people, saved people, yes, but still imperfect, make up the church. And we are part of that. Sometimes we think everybody else is the problem. Sometimes there's that little, that little ditty that we would say, if everyone was just like me, what kind of church would this church be? That's a good question to ask. But I would rather say, if the church was like the Lord Jesus Christ, and His word, what kind of church would it be? That's where we should strive to attain to. So these churches were struggling with issues. And Paul was telling them it's shameful. It's shameful that the church has the reputation that it does in the community. I wonder, if we were to go out today to those that are not believers or those that have nothing to do with the church and ask them what their impression is of the church, especially in the last six months from what they have seen from many professing Christians, what kind of answers do you think we would receive? If we were to spend 10 minutes on a comment section in any type of political, mask, not mask, you bring up the topic and let, let's read through a comment section from professing Christians and see how we have presented ourselves. And see if that is in fact the spirit of wisdom, meekness, and humility that the Lord calls us to exercise. 
if we're not being a light out there and we come in here and have to pretend that we are, we need to repent. If what we're saying and doing out there is not the same as what we're saying and doing in here, you should be at the altar today. Because we shouldn't have to fake it when we come in here. And we certainly shouldn't have to fake it when we go out there. We should live a constant, consistent life because James also says elsewhere, a double-minded man is unstable. We ought to live a consistent, holy life. And when we fall short, we own it. We take responsibility for it. We don't try to justify it, excuse it. We repent, confess, and apologize to those who were. In 3 John, so John does have three epistles. I know we never spend any time looking at the other two. We always just look at 1 John. But yes, there is a 3 John. And in 3 John, verses 6 through 9, I want to read to those to you from the New Living Translation. Just a little bit different angle here. But you understand it. John writes, they, so there's some brethren visiting that aren't part of that, that area, part of that church, if you will. They have told the church here, so they went there, and now they've come back where John is, and they have brought a message. They have told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. But they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers. So we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. These folks were doing everything that they were doing for the glory of God. They weren't taking the money for it. They weren't trying to get a status symbol in their lives. They were living, and what they were doing was noticed by other people. They were making a difference in the places they ministered and the world they were going out into. But then look at the rest of this verse. <coughs> I wrote to the church about this, but the Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, who loves the preeminence, refuses to have anything to do with us. What a contrast. He just talked about this group of believers that were glorifying God, that had made him the main thing, and were serving him, and they were impacting the world. And yet there's a man in the church named Diotrephes who has to have preeminence and he was bringing a black eye to the believers because of his pride. You see the contrast? Which one do you want to be? You want to be the faithful brethren who aren't even named. They didn't even need to name their names. It wasn't important. They were pointing people to Jesus. Do you want that testimony? Or do you want to be the one that's always in the limelight for all the wrong reasons? Because here's the thing. The church as a whole, this church, the 30 other churches on Millville Avenue, and churches all over, if they're a true New Testament church, they don't belong to the pastor. And they don't belong to the members. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blood. It is our duty to be stewards of the church, pastors to be overseers, not lording that over you, but overseers offering direction and wisdom as we can. But we work together to move according to the word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. Because it's his church. James 4.11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not doer of the law but a judge. Again, he's coming back to the fact that these words, we are off, we are wrong in our spirit. We're not using wisdom and meekness. There's jealousy and selfishness behind it. And the world watches that and they say, look at how those Christians treat one another. Look at how they treat one another. That is not the testimony that we want to have in the world, brothers and sisters. That's not. This is the spirit and the testimony that we want to have. As Jesus prayed in, uh, shortly before his betrayal in John 17, verse 21, he said, I pray that they may all be one. I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. You don't think for a moment that the way we act and behave towards one another isn't important to a watching world? You're fooling yourself. They are watching. D.L. Moody used to say, the only Bible that some people ever read is Christians. They're watching you. They're watching me. On Facebook, on Instagram, as you go out to eat, as you talk in the stores, they're watching and they're listening. What kind of testimony are you leaving? Are you furthering the cause of Christ? Are you creating a stumbling block in front? There was trouble in the carpenter shop. The tools were fighting among themselves. It's the hammer's fault. One of them said, he's always banging and making lots of noise. Amber said, no, it's not me. The blame lies with the saw. He's always going back and forth. The saw protested, no, it's not me. It's the planer's fault. His work's so shallow. He's always just skimming the surface. The planer objected and said, I think the real trouble is with the screwdriver. All he does is go around in circles. Nonsense, said the screwdriver. The real trouble is with the ruler. He's always measuring people by his own standards. The ruler replied, I think that the trouble is with the sandpaper. He's always rubbing people the wrong way. Why pick on me, said the sandpaper. I think you ought to blame the drill. He's so boring. <laughs> And the drill was about to protest. And the carpenter came in and he put on his apron. And he was going to be making a pulpit for church. And when he finished his work, he'd used every single one of those tools. And the pulpit that was made was beautiful and used by the church, by the ministers, to preach the gospel to thousands of people. But it came to fruition. Because those tools were used by the master builder together to create something glorious. And my friends, that is what God wants to do with each one of you in his local church. But as long as we are blaming the screwdriver and the hammer and the saw for our problems, we will never unite together to see God build something great in and through us. Because God uses imperfect people all there is. From the pastors to the deacons to everyone else, 
for imperfect people who fail and have flaws. So in meekness and humility, show grace. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why would we be at war with one another? James tells us what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. What's the reason? Is it not this, that your passions, your lusts, are at war where? Your members, where are they at war? What does he say? Within you. Within you. Where do these wars and fights come among you? It's your passions at war within you. You've got to understand this. You have to see this this morning. If you ever want to experience victory in this area of your life, you have got to understand the source of the problem. We are treating the symptom of the problem constantly or lashing out at who we think is the problem, just like the tools did. And they weren't introspective about where the real problem was. The wars come because there are lusts at war within you. And the war in your heart will become the war in the church, in your family, in your community, wherever you go. Because you are a walking civil war. Everywhere you go, there's going to be a war. What's causing this in us, these passions, these lusts? The Greek is hedonai, hedonai, I'm sorry, where we get our word hedonism from, again, this desire to be pleased, selfish desires, selfish satisfaction. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, Frank Sinatra. He sung about how he lived his life, didn't he? What did he say? I did it my way. I did it my way. Anytime you look at the Bible and find somebody that did it their way, nothing good ever happened. If I were to take you to the book of Joshua and we looked at a man named Achan, Israel was defeating all these nations, these tribes. God's hand was upon them. They were obedient. And then Achan decided to take some of the accursed things that he wanted. It would be good for me. They would be uh, pleasing to me. He took them, hit them in his tent. The result was a little itty bitty town like Ai defeated the great Israelite army. Because God removed his hand of blessing on the entire tribe until Achan was gone. You see, he had a problem in his heart, and it affected everyone. And that's how it works, church. There was a man. It was always against everything in the in the church business meeting. Anytime anything was brought up, he would stand up and say, I'm against it. And one business meeting, one of the members offered a brand new, beautiful chandelier to the church. Free of charge. The man stood up. He said, I'm against it. And the pastor said, why in the world would you be against it? It's absolutely free. And the man said, well, first of all, we don't have anybody to play it. I right <laughs> he said, secondly, we don't have anywhere to put it. 
And third, what we really need around here is more light. <laughs> you see, when we get so caught up in what we want that we become illogical because we cast aside the wisdom that comes from God in meekness and we're so on fire to get our way that we can't even think logically anymore. So that's what that funny little story says. The root of wars and fightings and conflict is selfishness instead of meekness. It's my will be done instead of thy will be done in our lives. Listen to Galatians 5.17. But the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The battle is waging on internally. And if you keep submitting to the flesh, you are not going to do the things you want to do. The great hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called Soldiers of Christ Arise. Listen to one of the verses in that song. He says, leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. From strength to strength, go on. Wrestle, fight, and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. The cause of the conflicts is internal. And it will always show itself externally. But James gives us a cure for the conflicts. Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have. Think about that. All the war, all the fighting, all the conflicts, all the give it to me my way. I'll do it my way. And what's the end result? They have nothing. It didn't amount to nothing. Nothing was resulted from it. He says, you have not because you ask not. Church, wouldn't it be better to wrestle with God than to wrangle with man? Would it not be more beneficial for us? What if all of our disputes and all of the discord was made a matter of prayer instead of a war? He asks, and I ask, do you pray? Do you pray in light of his word? He says, you have not because you ask not. The old hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Not only does he say that we desire and do not have, and we murder, we covet, we cannot pain, so we fight, and we have not because we do not ask. But look at verse 3. Not only do we need to ask, we need to ask in the right way. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly or you ask amiss. The old commentator Matthew Henry said, uh, we miss when we ask amiss. When we ask wrongly, don't expect to receive an answer from the Lord. So if we need to pray, and we need to pray in the right way, what is the right way? How then should we be praying, church? How then should we be going about this process 
so that we can have the wisdom and the meekness and the unity and the love and the peace and all of the things that God desires for his people. 1 John 5, 14 says this. Here is the answer to how we should ask. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do you ask according to God's will? Get to know the Word of God. Because the Word of God will always be the will of God. The Word of God will always be the will of God. When you deviate from the Word, you're out of His will. Mark it down. Pastor, you don't know how difficult they are. Doesn't matter. Love your enemies as much as possible. Be peaceable with all men. Pastor, it's their fault. Doesn't matter. Forgive. As Christ has forgiven you. We can keep interjecting our will. We can be in His will. And do it His way. Because prayer, friends, is never for the purpose of getting our will done on earth. <coughs> Prayer is for the purpose of God getting God's will to be done on earth. Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A humble and meek desire to see God glorified. That is the spirit that we need to strive to have. All the time. All the time. Just in here and out there. Not just in here and out there in your home. Not just out in here and out there in your home, in your church, in your workplace, in your school. It's a life that we strive for. And then he says in verse 3, we need to pray for the right reasons. So we need to pray, we need to pray right, and for the right reasons. What's the right reason? You do not you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. What is wrong? To spend it on your passions, your desires. There was a rich member of Parliament who lived quite a long time ago named John Ward. And they discovered some writings by John Ward. And one of the writings that they discovered by him was a prayer that he had wrote down. I'm going to read that prayer to you. John Ward, a rich member of Parliament, as I said, uh, wrote this. O Lord, thou knowest that I have many estates in the city of London, and likewise I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee, Lord, to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and from earthquake. And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beseech thee, Lord, to have an eye of compassion on that county also. As for the rest of the counties, Lord, deal with them as thou art pleased. He was concerned for certain areas because it benefited him. And I'm afraid that we, even when we pray, we pray for the right way, and pray in the right way, we pray for the wrong things. We pray because it ultimately benefits us. We pray because we want to see the church grow 
so that we can brag on it. Because let me tell you something. When pastors get together, it takes about two minutes for the first question that always gets asked. Not what's the, it's not what's the spiritual health of the church. How many people are getting discipled? How important is the Word of God? You know what the question is always asked? How many run on Sunday? And we have turned that thing into such a reason to boast. And I'm not saying that a small church is godly and a big church is ungodly, or we ought to want to stay small, or we ought to try to just get a mega church. Not about any of that stuff. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. If he chooses to give me a five-member church to shepherd, I will answer for those five people, so I better take it serious. If he gives me 5,000 people to shepherd, then that is what he has given me to be accountable for, and I better take it serious. But when we got caught up in those things just to simply brag and boast about what we're doing, we're praying in the wrong way. We're doing it all wrong, church. It's got to be done in the spirit of meekness and humility that ultimately wants to bring him glory. What is your concern when you pray? You need to ask yourself that. Am I praying? Am I praying in the right way? Am I praying for the right reasons? I thought about Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, 36, as Elijah prayed, his focus was on one thing. See if you can pick it out in verse 36 here. And at that time, and at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things according to your word. All Elijah was worried about was that people knew his God, saw him as nothing but a servant who had kept Faithfully, he was in God's will by doing so. That's how we pray. That's how we ask rightly. That's the right attitude that we are to have when we pray. Not my will, but thine be done. Can you pray that this morning? Between you and God, you don't need to answer that to me or anybody else. But as you look at your life, in your home, at your job, with your friends, and in this church, can you honestly say that everything you're doing is thy will be done rather than my will be done? If not, there's a place in your heart that needs to be changed. You'll never be, listen to me, now I want to speak to you for a moment if you're an unbeliever. You will never have peace with God until you repent of your sins and come to Jesus. There is no way that a holy God will ever have fellowship with an unregenerate fallen man or woman or boy or girl, which is what every single one of us were and are apart from Christ. And so if you're here today and you say, the world is a mess, my life is a mess, I see the sin in my life, I see that I'm always going to the wrong things, doing the wrong things, saying the wrong things, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living that way. There's got to be something better. I hear about this Jesus. I do see a difference in the lives of Christians, and I want what they have. If you want it, my friend, it's available. The offer of salvation is available to you this morning. You receive it by faith. And just like we sang, and I believe we'll sing here in a moment. You come just as I am. 
God knows your sins. He asks that you repent of those sins, turn from those sins to Him. But He won't keep you away because of those sins. The only thing that will keep you away is your unbelief. And you can try Him in faith today. You can be saved and have peace, true peace with God. And then you can become part of a local church. We'd love it to be here, but if not, we pray that you get plugged into a local church and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, we can't love one another. We can't love our neighbors if we are not praying or if we're praying for our own desires. If we never put ourselves aside and think of them, we can't truly love them. Excuse me, the way that Jesus wants us to. We never have unity in the church. We're striving in selfish ambition. When we think highly of others over ourselves, what great things God can do. And what great things I believe He's going to do. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and get ready to give this invitation. I want you to think about one thing. The main thing is Jesus in your relationship with Him. But I want you to think about our world in our country. And we see everything going on. We're so tired of it, if we're honest, aren't we? Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of fighting and the bickering and quarreling? There's got to be something better. And there is. What I preached to you this morning. The question is, will you live, try to live the life Available. Only you can answer that. So let's pray. Stand and sing as the invitation is given. And if you need to come, pray that you will be Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. That the problem lies within our own hearts. And Lord, you can change that. You can wash that away. Make us new. Make us clean. If we'll simply come in faith and surrender to you. It's my prayer today that all of us would consider where we are at in our walk what we need to do to bring peace and unity to our churches, our homes, and our world. And help us, Lord, to do that today. In Jesus' name. And we stand as we stand. If you need to come, you come.